This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Bella Catering, one of Sydney's very best catering companies run by Glenn and Maria and their team. Glenn is a degenerate, but their entire team is absolutely incredible. Great food, great reasonable prices, great delivery all around Greater Sydney. So do yourselves a favor, don't cook. Order some food from bellacatering.com.au. They are going to be a company that has the staying power to survive past COVID-19, but with your help. So if you can, bellacatering.com.au, you can check them out. They are definitely friends of the show and of this series and of all One Heat Minute productions. And we're very proud that they jumped on as a sponsor to all the President's Minutes. We're happy to point people in their direction. We love them dearly. So if you guys have got a few uh, a few extra bucks and you don't want to cook, really, who the hell wants to cook right now? Um, I mean, you're just looking at that number in Victoria of coronavirus patients go up and up thinking about things shutting down, order some catering. Cater for the remaining family. You can get to your house in Sydney right now. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the show. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, one of the, the thrilling things for any folks who've listened to any of our One Hit Minute productions, and particularly All the President's Minutes, is that my intention was, as this is a text that sort of intersects with journalism and history and movies and culture, uh, was to not only mix up all of our great movie minds who are tackling this, but journalists and there are some staple journalists in this country who um, I get excited about uh, the prospect of talking to. And I even said to my wife like 15 to 20 minutes ago as I was preparing for the recording, she's just asking nicely, like, oh, who, who are you recording with today? And I said the name of my guest and she was more starstruck with this guest almost than any, no actors, no performers, just this person who is a staple of the Australian news landscape for such a long time, a person that we've had in our homes and we're familiar with. And so it was super exciting for me to actually blow my wife away with introducing this person. For those internationally who are listening or locally, national affairs editor, 10 news anchor, reporter, host of a podcast called The Professor and the Hack, which I strongly recommend you download, writer, traveler, awesome dad, and husband. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Hugh Remington to all the President's Minutes. <laughs> what I can say, Blake, is after a rap like that, I just don't know, uh, I can do nothing but disappoint. <laughs> and your, your, your wife plainly looking at both of us is a very poor judge of male character. But, uh... <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's so funny. I was just like, I looked at her and I'm like, yeah, like, what, what? firstly, I was more shocked. Like, are you surprised that someone would want to talk to me of his caliber? Is that, is that what you're saying? It's actually genuinely impressed um, that I'm getting to talk to you. And, and mate, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's, um, you know, people who follow you and being in this news cycle and being in the Australian news cycle and so embedded in it now in this 
insane world that we're in. I just don't think, uh, you know, at the beginning of the project, you were someone I, whose name I had down who I'd love to talk to around, you know, the Australian political context and what we want to talk about from a news media cycle. But, oh, man, the unfathomable sort of events of this year, I mean, it's it must be even more insane for you on the literally reporting every single day and reporting and being in, in the mix. What's it like for you, this landscape of, uh, of journalism in 2020 with everything going on? Look, so it's fascinating because we're seeing so many things which are coming together at the same time. And it's really interesting. I, I was very drawn by the All the President's Minutes idea because the first president I knew of as a child was Nixon. Yes. And uh, so my first real conception of what the US presidency was, was that it was run by a crook. Uh, so my very first conception as a, as a kid living far from the United States was that the United States has this thing called the president and the president is a crook. <laughs> and here we are, however many years later on. And there'd be many to say that he is um, uh, in many ways worse than Nixon. Uh, Nixon at least was a man of, of actual foreign policy uh, ambition and, and policy ambition and a deep uh, thinker and um, practitioner in um, the arts of politics, the dark arts of politics, as well as some of the light arts of politics. Uh, and, and he came unstuck for all the ways that we might discuss and that people are probably well aware of. But, um, but we've now got a president who has, actually has almost no interest, who has done no deep thinking about <laughs> policy, uh, no deep thinking about, about uh, foreign, uh, the interconnectedness of, of, of nations. Uh, and the, the influence the, that the presidency can have over those sorts of things. I went to Singapore for the first of those uh, Trump-Kim summits, and it was bizarre to see the, the theatre that was associated with this, and, and also to see Kim up close. Because Kim, who has this sort of idea, there's this picture of him as being this sort of chubby little fat, um, <laughs> out of his depth, little pampered brat of a, of a sort of a family... Uh, you know, kleptocracy, you know, a nasty, you know, one, it's not even one party, it's all in the yes. embodiment of a single person. It's essentially, it's, it's a kingdom. And, um, you know, that he might not know what he was doing or all this sort of stuff. And then when you see him, there's a couple of things that were remarkable on. One is that he's, he's actually very big. So he's not all that tall, but he's, he's a very big man. And he also has this incredibly deep, gravelly voice. And when you heard, you saw the two of them together, obviously, Kim being, translated and you'd have this he had this really kind of dominating you could see this figure in a place where people are not large with a voice who with this big deep growling voice and you realize that in his own context kim uh was a swaggering deep powerful charismatic figure around the people around him and you also realize that trump thought he was steering around this kind of boy child but Kim thought he was staring around a boy child as well. It was just wonderful piece of theatre about the presidency and the where which you're like and stuff. So, so what are the days like today? We are seeing this extraordinary conjunction of the loss of faith in the American project. Um, we're seeing the loss of faith in the post-war globalization project and and also the post-Cold War project about freeing up the markets, freeing up global trade, uh, led by the United States. So that's all collapsing. Uh, health and our expectations around health are collapsing. The economy is collapsing with it. Even things that we've taken for granted since the 
particularly since the jumbo jet arrived. It was significant that the last Qantas jumbo jets, uh, the 747s are taking off and, and, and disappearing from our skies permanently because yeah. it was the jumbo jet that cheapened and made quick global travel that we all for a generation just assumed is how it will always be, that we get on a plane, go to Hong Kong, go to, go to Italy for our honeymoons or whatever it is, and that suddenly even that has stopped. And mainstream media, in which I've spent my entire life, and which is, you know, the, the, all the president's men, the original movie and, and the events that it depicts was about the noble uh, public trust power of a brave, courageous, tenacious media. Yes. Uh, which could bring these things down. All of that is collapsing at the same time. I've never imagined a time at which so many enormous institutional things we've taken for granted for decades have collapsed simultaneously. And that's the time we're living in right now. It's amazing times. It's, it's amazing times. And, and the, it's so good to, to talk about just the context of all of the things that we actually take for granted. So I think that things have been under scrutiny even since 2016, since the implementation of Trump's presidency around, you know, uh, the casting doubt on these powerful institutions that are to hold crooked presidents to account like journalists. You know, I think it's been under some scrutiny for some time, but like you said, even the concept of, uh, to talk a, a completely different movie, what I, w- I was watching the trip to Spain, which is the new uh, Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon travelogue series comedies show. And they've done four of them so far and it begins in Turkey and then they take a ferry over in into Spain and they're driving through these beautiful Spanish rolling hills that fall off into this beautiful turquoise waters. And I was sitting at home and I was watching it and I was just thinking, God, is this a this this is as much a fantasy as Star Wars is a fantasy of like imagining how great it would be to grab your partner, grab a friend, travel overseas, jump in a car, take your kids, you know, over it's just like wouldn't you like to take your kids to these beautiful rolling hills? It's like it feels like all these things, um, so to our very core that cuts. But I love that you said right from the very start, because that is exactly where I guess I started is when I first even had an awareness of what a president was as a young kid, um, uh, you know, I was born in the eighties. I had no concept of Reagan, but, and I'm not even a Bush really, cause I didn't really know we're in Australia. So we had prime ministers that I was thinking about it's Clinton. And then immediately as I was in, in that, I was surging in my United States American consumption. And then you watch something like JFK and all you want to know is about the Nixon era. All you want to know is about JFKs and Nixons and this crooked presidency. And so that's what dragged me back to this film and, and the very concept of it. So, you as a sort of steadfast mainstream journalist, all the president's men, is it a film that you've revisited? Is it something that was inspirational to you as a young man? Is it something that you've had a relationship with? Well, I, I certainly remember that say in the seventies, I started high school in 1973, I think it was. And um, I had a kid in my class called um, Philip Nixon, as it happens. <laughs> and he was, a, he was a kind of a shy, you know, sweet natured lad. And uh, but immediately there was a, um, uh, a a Nixon for president campaign among some of the louder kids in the year, and sure enough, he found himself elected as the class president. He had no say in the matter, just on the basis of his uh, his surname, so that we could proclaim that we indeed had our own president Nixon. Um, the you know the the times then were extraordinary because it wasn't just Nixon the, the Watergate scandal much of which, as the movie itself depicts, they were reporting aspects of this stuff and it was getting no grip anywhere. Right. 
it really was a very slow burn. And the little details of this or that that came up were really of no interest. A lot of those Watergate stories were not front page stories. They were buried in the paper because there were other things going on that was taking place. And you must remember that it was also coming at the time of, um, of two things socially. One was uh, the Vietnam War had soured even for the true believers in it. You know, there are still true believers who believe it was the right thing, etc. And they, they certainly existed then. But by and large, the weight of public opinion had shifted from Vietnam. So uh, the United States was perceived as being run by a crook, engaged in and trying to extricate itself from a war but that, that by that stage had, uh, had reached uh, had lost its social license to continue that war and people were were over it and, and had a sense that it was the wrong project being conducted in the wrong way. And that had a very souring element. At the same time, the peace, love and understanding summer of love stuff that had come up through the 1960s by the early 70s had also soured. Yes. So it might have been possible in 1968 uh, to believe in a world that uh, could be, say, fueled by dope and love and, um, you know, and peace. And that, in fact, this was a revolutionary set of concepts that hadn't been tested in, uh, you know, in, in recorded history, but that might possibly work. You could possibly have had that um, optimistic view of it all in 1968. By 72, 73, you couldn't. Yes. Um, by then, already the drug, the, you know, the influences of drugs on just individual health had started to become evident. There was, there was no wonderful thing that didn't have any downside to it. And, um, you know, the music business itself seemed corrupt. The whole thing was falling apart. Even the music was starting to get crap. Uh, <laughs> you know, prog rock had arrived. So, um, and after that, there was no future hope. So there was an amazingly sour feeling in the air by the early 70s when this was taking on. And one of the shining lights in that period, oddly, was the concept of journalism. Yes. Because Woodward and Bernstein elevated in a way that had never previously happened the, the notion of the role of the fastidious, entirely public interested, hitherto anonymous, these were not star reporters, they later got their Pulitzers and they became star reporters, but they were not perceived to be star celebrity reporters, all that came later. The TV star, apart yeah. from perhaps Cronkite, hadn't really, hadn't really come in the news sense. And so here were people laboring in, in the engine rooms of, of, of a newspaper who had through their hard work, their context and their integrity and their capacity to grasp in a way that others weren't able to grasp at that stage, the degree of the perfidy that was going on, Yes. had uncovered and brought down a presidency. And so there was that period when um, everybody wanted to be not merely a journalist, but to be an investigative reporter, someone that, with the capacity to reveal um, the hidden truths. And to a degree, the DNA of that still exists in the system, whether it's a, a Kate McClymont in, in Australia, yes. uh, or, or even to a degree an Assange type character. Some people see him as being a kind of a modern, um, uh, you know, revisitation of that same concept. Others would argue that the nobility aspect is not there with him. Yes. Um, and that he has a different thing going on. I don't want to get into that argument, but there was that period in the seventies when the most noble thing, when for a brief period, 
journalism went from being among the most despised crafts to one that really was as noble as any that, that existed in the land. And, and that was Woodward and Bernstein and Watergate. And was that a young Hugh Remington at school deciding where his career path was going to go and going, you know what, I think, I think I want to do that. I want to be that guy. I no, guys, I'd, no, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to say it was, but I was, I was still, um, as a kid at school, I was, uh, very much interested in the getting off your face um, <laughs> sort of legacy of of sixties and early seventies, and I was uh, with they great say it's enthusiasm. Takes a little bit, a little bit longer to catch up uh, at times. <laughs> well, I was even worse than Australia. I was growing up in a small town in New Zealand, so we're we're well in the caboose, and um, and so I was getting myself hammered through high school in every way that I possibly could, and by the end of high school, I had no endorsed by your own class president Nixon yes not even that could inspire me and so I got uh, and so I was basically I left high I left high school with no real prospects New Zealand was very generous towards getting people rather like Scandinavia and getting people into universities particularly at that stage and I had the marks to get into a university I'd scraped in there and I could have done anything except for medicine that wouldn't have let me loose on that but um but i didn't do that i didn't want to do that so i i had a job as a hospital cleaner and uh in fact i blew that job because uh i had to polish the floors and as i was polishing the floors late one night i, I wasn't cleaning wards i, I was cleaning that it, it was a teaching hospital and there were other things going on there and one night the my polished floor polishing machine shorted out and I was right at the end of my shift. I thought, oh, that's okay. I'll wrap up and I'll go home. But no one needs to know. Who cares? Nearly done anyway. And it turns out I'd shorted out the blood bank and all the blood <laughs> supply for the town for all those operations um, uh, all went bad. And they're putting emergency calls out for blood supplies. And when I wrote about this in, in, a, in a book a couple of years ago, <laughs> um, I got a, an, um, a, a, a I think it was an email or some form of communication from someone who said, yes, I can attest to the truth of that because <laughs> I was due for an operation and got put off. Oh my God. So there are real world consequences, but they didn't, it was unionized. They couldn't sack you. So, um, so they shunted me into the least glamorous hospital cleaning job that you could do. And that was, it was a teaching hospital that had, believe it or not, animal laboratories there where they would do, medical experiments on animals is terrible chiefly rats but rabbits there's one forlorn sheep in there and my job was to clean the shit the rat shit <laughs> out of the out of the little trays that came out of the rat things and that's what i was doing for a living i woodward and bernstein forget it that was off in another world and i by the weirdest good fortune um i uh i met by almost by accident a bloke who was a radio news director and he bizarrely enough thought I'd applied for a job. And so he started interviewing me and I recognized from the first question, because the first question was, why do you want to be a journalist? The thought hadn't crossed my mind. Um, I, 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 well, my answer was because it would be fun. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, but I immediately recognized this was some kind of job interview. And he looked at me and growled and fun. And I said, well, isn't that why you do it? And, um, and he sort of had to concede the point and then asked me some more questions and I, and what, and I was just kind of engaged in the game. I could easily have said no, but I was cleaning rat poo at the time. Well, and, uh, and I got the job with the one forlorn sheep and the rat shit, or is it the fun of, <laughs> prospect of getting out of there? Anything could be fun after that. 
Yeah, well, you know, I was happy enough in my own world. I was getting paid and I didn't care very much. But, and oddly enough, um, it took me a few years before I realized actually that journalism does matter and that it does play an important role. And that I also learned that um, the human animal doesn't respond to detailed facts. It can't manage very well with detailed facts. Um, it, it responds to narrative. Yes. And that's why we can still talk about a movie like All the President's Men. But if we were to say, sit down, neither one of us, for all our, our enthusiasm for it, could stomach sitting down with all the, you know, the government documents, the legal flowcharts, the organisational structures, etc., that they ploughed through to get that story out. Um, we respond to narrative. And, and that's when you realise that journalism has a really important role in 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 shaping the sort of the, the fundamental elements that go into national narratives and international narratives. It's, and what we, <laughs> what we both outside of um, our experience uh, being in this part of the world don't understand is like the sheer volume of once you even, once these guys are indicted and telling the story of every single day, these guys in the Watergate trials, like phone book size transcripts of both Nixon's speeches, their speeches, the different bramble of the political departments and, and those sorts of things. And then the weird espionage sort of elements and layering of information so that people can't get that. It's so hard to consume. And I, I think that's what I, I love about, I love everything about this movie. And one of the things I love is the proximity with which they're telling the story and then the economy how, how you navigate what to tell to get enough information across. And even as a passive viewer, this movie says a whole bunch of names that you can, it is impossible to keep up with on one viewing. You can't, you can't possibly wrangle it. But what, what it does so effectively is that it's the repetition of the names, the structure of the names, the retelling of the story, the way that the editorial teams continually challenge the veracity of the story, what's happening there. It's this whole technique of, as you said, like narrativizing what's happening in the world in a way that is consumable. It is so, so perfectly executed in this movie. And why it continues to resonate with me is just exactly that. The time with which it took this story to happen and all the detail and all of the fastidious stuff that these guys have to do to just get the story out. But then Robert Redford himself putting shoe leather on the ground and going visiting Bob Woodward and saying in 1974, before the book's even published, I want the rights to the book. If you guys do it, I want to make this thing happen. And then in 1975, they're making a movie about events that happened between 72 and 74. And it's elevated to this level, to this Oscar nominated resonant thing still 40, nearly 50 years later. Yeah. I think one of the things the movie really is strong on is the level of doubt. Yes. That you have as they're plowing through this thing, they can't see it whole yes. years later. You can package it up and you can say, well, this is what happened. And, and this led on to this, to that, to that. But when you're in it and if you, if you indulge in this kind of reporting or if you engage in this kind of reporting um, in your life, this is the real enemy. It's not even government ob obfuscation and other sorts of things, or, you know, potential threats against you for having the temerity to, you know, to look into the dark corners, you know, as we're seeing now the arrest of journalists for, for daring to report uh, stuff happening within Australia. But it's actually the doubt. Is it a story? You have to put yourself the counterfactual all the time. 
Yes. What if there's nothing to this? And particularly when they were trying to juggle, as you say, lots of different names. We, we didn't know until decades later who their deep throat source was. Yes. And that was the guy uh, who, who was a, an FBI bloke. Yes. Uh, who's not mentioned in it. There's all these suggestions. It was Kissinger, it was Alexander Haig, it was all these other kinds of people. But in fact, it was this bloke buried in the, in the, in the FBI who no, no one would have known who his name was. And yet he held the key, uh, the cornerstone to this whole apparatus of lies and deceit and, and cover up and so on. And there's a beautiful line in there, actually, which, which is where uh, they're talking to their editor, who, who's got um, exasperated by their lack of progress and thinks that they're, they're going nowhere with it. And uh, one of them, I can't remember, is Woodward or Bernstein, says people are not talking, uh, but it's a way that they're not talking that's unnatural. Yes. And I laughed out loud when I saw that because what have you got there? You're, you're reading the runes about how people are not talking to you yes. uh, as a way of encouraging yourself that maybe there's something still there. And I do know from my own experience in covering, I was in Canberra during all those years of leadership changes, both in, in Labour and the coalition in, in Australia. And, you know, they were changing leaders every, you know, three a year or two. Yeah. And, and when you get a leadership chase on, there is you can absolutely rely on even your normal reliable sources to lie to you. Yes. And, and so you are in an absolute uh, bird's nest of lies. Uh, it is like all the signals of scrambling and have gone into reverse. Yes. Because the stakes are so high for the individual players and even people who might say, give you the steer as to what's really behind a policy that's coming up or can give you some insights into what are the, um, uh, what are the perhaps the personality plays that are taking place within a faction or other sorts of things and, and give you honest insight to the best of their ability and with a bit of humor about what they're doing when a leadership chase is coming on. Now they don't talk to you or they, or they, or, or you'll get a, a flat out lie from them. Yeah. And so when he says, you know, people are not talking, but it's the that's way that they're not talking that's unnatural. That is absolutely at the core of that process of trying to find out what the hell is actually going on. Well, the minute that we're talking about in questions, so for folks who, you, who's this is dialed up in your, your podcasting app of preference, you would see that it's the 73rd minute. We've, we've now officially crossed the halfway mark of this movie uh, it's, I think a good time for us to inject the minute into our discussion. So Hugh and I are going to watch it together. Now you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to unpack it and you can see the exasperation on the faces of these guys. And I think I love one of the things is that constant self doubt in this movie that is so reinforcing, but it's, this is a moment where you actually feel how tired these guys are <laughs> the way that they're draped over these chairs. It is just a great thing. So if you, if you usually listen along, I strongly encourage you to watch this minute if you haven't already a million times, um, but watch this and we'll come back and we'll talk about it. They shouldn't have to republish without it. They're going to bury the report until after the renomination. The grand jury indictment will be out soon and every indication says the indictment will stop with the five burglars, Hunt and Liddy. And that's the end of your story. The vote of all the delegates has been recorded. The vote for Richard Nixon is 1,347. The vote for Paul McCloskey is one. And therefore, I declare the nominee of the Republican Party. 
President of the United States, President Richard Nixon. Well, I don't know if it's a spoiler for some, but Gerald Ford actually becomes the president of the United States. Isn't that the moment? <laughs> so this is this is a great little a great little minute because it is announcing Nixon's renomination. And for folks in an abstract way who haven't really understood everything that's happening in Watergate, it's like, oh, how did Nixon didn't they oust Nixon? What's going on? But you know, true to fact. Nixon gets reelected. These stories do not stop the train, the Nick, the Republican train at that time, which is all the more fascinating, I think. And Hugh talked about it, these guys being exasperated, people not talking to them. But I just love in this film that it keeps talking about this guy who had unfathomable influence at that time and seeming approval, unfathomable approval, took the time out of his life and the time out of his presidency to construct this really complicated espionage network to disrupt democratic re-election when it was all but certain even these old cynical editors in other scenes of the film are going it's all but certain he's going to get the renomination it's all but certain he's going to get re-elected but yet his ego you know he, he had to make it a certainty he could not have a shadow of a doubt for re-election or renomination uh, and I mean, in many ways that was a nixon's genius um in that he was a uh, a, a a total political animal. Yes. And he could manage detail, uh, you know, down to that, you know, so the level of his actual involvement of the break-in, in the Watergate break-in, yes. uh, you know, as they say, it was a cover-up, not the crime that did him in, in the end. Yes. But, um, but, but yes, he, he was a guy who kept score against his enemies, who was, some argued, quite paranoid, uh, giving rise <laughs> to the famous it. Henry Kiss. Henry, the Henry Kissinger line that uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean to say they're not out to get you. Uh, he was talking about Nixon. And, and that was the quality of Nixon. But, I mean, there's so much to delight in just in that minute. And uh, one of them is Jerry Ford, because uh, th- what you're seeing there is the moment of his renomination for the presidential uh, ticket for the Republican Party, not his actual victory in the election. Yes. So the party has gone through the, the process of its uh, primaries and so on. And not surprising, has taken the sitting incumbent president and, and given him a huge endorsement, four more years, four more years, all that kind of stuff. Um, and there's Jerry Ford, the fresh-faced former college football star, uh, who's been pumped out there to essentially act as the MC for that event. He had no other particular role. Who then, when Nixon's uh, vice president, Spiro Agnew, got hooked up in some scandal. I think it was some tax uh, scandal is what did him in. So the vice president drops away and and they needed someone who looked like a clean skin to go in there <laughs> as all the clouds were starting to roll around Nixon. And so they picked up Jerry Ford and they made him vice president. And uh, before you know it, of course, Nixon, spoiler alert, folks, <laughs> runs, runs foul of a small impeachment process and has to resign. I am not a crook and take the long walk off to Marine One, the helicopter, and disappear into, into well, into the hands of David Frost, as it turns out. But, uh, and, then, and then Jerry Ford becomes president. And this is the remarkable moment about this, because here was a man who became vice president without being elected to the vice presidency. Yes. The vice presidency, people forget this about this, about the American system, is that the vice president is the only other role other than the presidency 
which is directly elected by the people. So it's not like the Australian system where, you know, the leader of the, of the leading party gets to, gets to become, you know, the, the president, have the executive office and so on. And then in the United States, they determine their cabinet, essentially. They've got carte blanche to determine their cabinet, essentially. They can pull them from anywhere. They can go across the aisle. They can pull people out from other political parties. And of course, the traditions in the United States is if, if your president asks you to serve, you serve. You serve at the, at the will of the president. Yes. And um, there's that enormous kind of moral power that exists in the seat of the presidency, which has been much eroded, I suspect. But here was Jerry Ford, not elected as vice president, becomes vice president, and then never elected as president, becomes the president. I mean, what kind of a run is that? You know, <laughs> literally a man from nowhere, the good looking bloke from the back, about whom, of course, it was, saying, it was said that he was so dumb that he couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. And that was another one of those phrases, which was so good that we've never let it go ever since. I think, what's his name? It was the Australian Olympian who won the gold at the uh, the ice skating sprint when all of the other pa- people fell down. Before Stephen Bradbury. Stephen Bra- it's the Bradbury. It's a re- retroactively the Bradbury win. And no, no, much love to you, Stephen, because part of part of the game is staying afloat but that's exactly right with Ford it's it's one of those things that there's been some great retroactive analysis and comparisons between Trump and Nixon and they're talking about during the impeachment process the prospect of a clean skin as you put it which I think is so perfect like Jerry Ford coming in and being able to be influenced by the pre-existing structures of power within the Republican Party made the prospect of Nixon having to go easier according to some yes. analysis, contemporary analysis, because it's like, well, if he comes in, we've still got our structures, we've still got our people, we've got our base, and if we need to find another candidate, we can. Whereas during Trump's contemporary impeachment process, the prospect was, if we impeach this guy, we make Mike Pence this extremely far-right guy who p- perhaps is an even worse prospect as a political leader as Trump, the president of the United States. And that's what, you know, some of that analysis was like, Hey, Republicans wouldn't cross the aisle, even though they may have believed he deserved the impeachment because the prospect was having Mike Pence. And at least we know what Trump, how Trump acts, what, what the United States could happen with Pence in president is, is, is another thing altogether. It's some really interesting. I'm not sure I completely buy the analysis. I understand the analysis, but I don't completely buy it in a sense that, um, Pence has a record in, in governing as the governor of Indiana. So they knew the kinds of things that he could do. They knew he's, he's, he's far right. He's deeply Christian. His real guiding um, principles are this deeply evangelical Christian base. Um, and that would make him a more predictable player in, in some ways, although on the extremes, a more orthodox player yes. uh, than Trump. And, and certainly one with some capabilities around management. So his management techniques would be okay. But going back to Jerry Ford, Jerry Ford, to give him his due, acted with integrity. He had to bind up a damaged nation and uh, in a way that no one had had to do since um, on that level, probably uh, since the assassination of Lincoln, really. Yes. Um, that sense that uh, you know, maybe, maybe JFK a little bit, but, but, but JFK was seen as, as an outsider event that was terrible, it was scarring, it was excoriating for the United States, but it hadn't changed the United States in its essence, whereas yeah. the Civil War certainly was a reframing of the United States. And the fact that a president could be a crook like Nixon had scarred the country. And Jerry Ford did a pretty good job of pulling all that together. His only big mark was that he used the 
presidential right to pardon in his final act to pardon Nixon, and people felt that he should not have done that. Yes. Uh, and we see Trump just recently pardoning Roger Stone, you know, a, a felon, a convicted felon, and saying, ah, oh, well, you know, and everyone knowing that you can be a, you know, a black man in America and get killed by a cop with no, with ultimately no convictions against cops, but you can run um, political violence against the country as, as Roger Stone did for decades. And the president, you know, almost immediately goes, ah, well, we'll pardon him. Pardon him. It, it's, it's a crook system. It, it is. And it's the, the only, I think what is a heartening, it's like this minute in microcosm is kind of the noble and thankless profession of journalism is that your editors will, will continue to batter you to find the essence of that story, to make it meaningful for the public and, and make it meaningful for the public interest. And also that while these monumental events are happening and this, you know, this crooked train just keeps uh, chugging along, you've got to be there just typing, try like, even though this, yeah. You've, that that pursuit and it's much to the you know actually beautifully echoes the the finale of the film but it's like these monumental things are happening and these guys just in the face of them must keep reporting and must be those people that are out there on a limb typing up this story and getting something down and and leading with those facts and continuing to build it and to continue to sort of shape shape this story because they see that something is there they can see that something is Something is nasty. Something is. Yeah. I think one of the things about that is a beautifully shot, beautifully shot because it, you have that uh, counterposing of, of the, the lonely guy late at night in the office, tap, tap, tapping away in the Olivetti or whatever it was, the Adler, the Imperial <laughs> desk typewriter is what I started with. And, and, and the camera takes the view of the letters as they turn up. Yes. And there's nothing interesting there. There's nothing, as, you, as a viewer, you're looking at he's putting the president, whatever, he's typing stuff out. And there's, it's not as if you're saying, you know, the crook must fall or anything else like that. They're dull words. And you, they're dull to you as a viewer. And you just in that moment get the impression that they're dull even to the person writing it. Yes. That he's essentially kind of going through the motions, trying to dredge out this, this at that point, unexciting further detail. Yes. Whereas the excitement in the room of those balloons cascading from the heavens of, of Nixon with that great sweeping arm of, of, of victory as he accepts the nomination with a great and beaming the, smile and people change. One, and you, only one vote for Paul McCluskey, which is himself. Yeah. And that's even <laughs> I, I feel like a big kick in the teeth that it's so emphatic for Nixon that McCluskey in his own conscience has to vote for himself and everyone else is like, nah, it's, we're back in the president. Yeah. This is it. Yeah, as you'd expect it to be. And, and so there's that... In, in many ways, that film, you, you, it's interesting it's halfway in the film because it's the point at which uh, you can imagine Nixon thinking, um, she'll be right here. Well, yeah. it's fine. Everything's going as it should be. We've got a few, you know, nowadays I'd say barnacles, a few issues in the background, but they'll stay in the background. No one cares. We're getting away with this. I'm winning. The train is still on the track and ain't it a great train and ain't it a great, a great track. And on the other hand, the, the journo stricken with his own doubts, plodding along, the loneliness of it. And, you know, you think about the relationships that are being put under strain by the fact that he's there at midnight doing this thing <laughs> on a, what seems like a quixotic journalistic venture into, into nothing, um, and yet staying at the task. And that's where the, 
the real resilience and courage is needed uh, in, in the reporter uh, to see that through. And we've seen so many times in this movie, and this is what I, I think the addictive quality for it in re in, 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 in its rewatchability is, is just the, the meter. It's like the, the, the great meter, like the metronome almost of this movie is this small break and then they have to scrutinize, scrutinize the living daylights out of it and another small break and scrutinize and they just keep biting up and everything is difficult. And it's just that there's never this like one gigantic break that completely blows up the story, even though we're literally minutes away from this, what I would call, you know, for folks who've listened to my podcast before, we did, we did the film Heat. The centerpiece of that movie is either A, the coffee shop scene, in my mind it is, between Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, or be the heist scene, the central heist scene that takes place in the United States, uh, right in the LA downtown. The centerpiece of this film is the Oscar-nominated performance of Jane Alexander as the bookkeeper coming up, and Dustin Hoffman's incredible performance as Carl Bernstein, extracting this detailed confessional that really forms the foundation of a hell of a lot of what happens as far as indictments that come a little bit later in the film and later on in, at, at, after the end of the film. And so I love here, just at this moment, they're about to have another break, but you still, every single time they seem to have a half break in this story, they just, it clamps down on them. And, and that pursuit of like, all right, I've just got to knuckle down and I've got to do this. Uh, I, I love that about this whole minute. I love that. And, and again, like you said, really beaut like the beautiful split diopter crisp shot of like Gerald Ford's archival footage in all of its glory and the balloons. Like we, we have nothing like this in Australia and New Zealand where there's balloons falling from the ceiling of a stadium to announce <laughs> a candidate. Seeing that is just so, it's so amazing to look at and to, and to watch people be enraptured with this whole process and then the lack of glamour in the down lights of an office whiling around. Yes, absolutely. So the, a couple of things there. One is, of, of course, the great insight, which remains true to this day, is follow the money. And, um, and, and now we, you know, it, it remains the soundest way to try to figure out how people are being motivated is, 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 is to see what, what is money doing. And we know more about money, both in the United States and in Australia, about how it gets in and out of politics. We still don't know everything. But... Um, but, you know, we probably don't spend enough time thinking about money and the consequences of money in our political system. You know, there are certainly people who raise these concerns uh, in the United States, but um, it, it, people still don't seem to quite grasp the importance of money. Why do people spend money? What are they expecting in return? Who are they giving it to? Uh, the people who are receiving the money, how do they perceive what they owe back to the people who provided them with the money. So the money is crucial to the democratic process. And the other point which you make, which is, which is something I hadn't really thought about in, in these terms, is that when a Nixon or come to that, a, a Trump or a Biden gets the party nomination, it is a cause for celebration. Yes. And the reason for that is, is that you've had your primaries and your caucuses, you've gathered up the delegates, uh, you have won the battle against those who your internal uh, competitors for that, for that job. And some of those roles in the past have been, you know, like the Obama, Hillary Clinton one going back in 2008. It was, it was extraordinary uh, competition that was taking place. Uh, but then you get a winner. And then the party, by tradition, should rally behind that winner and it becomes a celebratory moment. If it's an incumbent, as Nixon was in this case, there's never any real doubt 
there's never any real doubt about it, but the celebration still goes on and it's a moment to declare four more years and to keep going. Now, in our system of government in Australia, the election of a new leader is far more often, not always, uh, sometimes leaders resign or retire. Yes. Um, at the end of a long career, and uh, 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 Howard will re retire because yes. he got defeated at the election, and then it becomes an open thing, and uh, and anyone can have a go. But when we have leaders emerging, whether in opposition or in government, in recent times, it has been not a celebration that <laughs> everyone can tally into. These are brutal blood sports carried out. Uh, often to the bewilderment of the voting public who didn't even see where it came from, rug getting torn down uh, in 2010. You, the, the punters had no idea what the hell was going on. They weren't celebrating it. They didn't even understand what had happened. Well, uh, you talked about going to, Sing going to Singapore for Trump. Kim, earlier, I, 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 I was in Singapore, strangely enough, when Rudd was ousted. And I was walking through it as Australian, like in Singapore airport, waiting to get my connecting flight to come back home. And I'm like, what do you mean the guy that we, we hitched our wagon to, this hope of, you know, progressive Australian politics, what do you mean he's ousted? And what do you mean Julie Gill as a new prime minister? Like, how does this even exist? And it feels like the 10-year bloodbath or 8 to 10-year bloodbath of Australian politics, just like it was a domino effect from there, this like continual cycling in and out of people in power. And it's just like, this just seems maddening. Like, you, you can't imagine it on a bigger scale like the United States, the Republican Party being able to oust someone or the Democratic Party being able to oust someone and put someone in. It just feels so... So completely strange. So completely strange. Yeah, I, I had, had a similar experience to a degree. I, I, in 1991, I went, uh, I'd got a job as for Channel Line as their London correspondent, but I had a bit of time up my sleeve. And I, at that stage, was doing a lot of climbing and stuff like that. So I hooked up with a friend and we went off to Nepal and climbed some mountains in Nepal and um, in the Himalayas. And then we got back to Kathmandu and the International Herald Tribune uh, was is the great traveler's newspaper it was in those days uh, basically the New York Times International Edition as it, yeah. as it then was and there was one sitting in some in, in Kathmandu at some hotel and I picked it up and I'm glancing through it and and somewhere in there was a little story saying the Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating and I thought wow gee, you know even the Herald Tribune can get things wrong from time to time you know Prime Minister Paul Keating you know uh, and then it, it's because he'd obviously been having a go a few goes over the previous years uh, and I thought don't tell me he's, don't tell me he is the prime minister. And sure enough, this entire drama of, um, of Keating knocking off uh, Hawk had happened while I was somewhere up whoop whoop on top of a mountain. And uh, I had the same sort of otherworldly experiences. Can't be right. And, and there were warnings about that, whereas there weren't warnings really about Rudd being taken down. Yeah, I think that that's strange. And it's actually, I think also what's funny is, and this is also sort of to the bewilderment of the public as well as, some of these fights for candidates, it's, you know, there seems to be a popular candidate, someone emerging and you feel like a party is hitched their wagon to or their voting base and it starts to get echoed. And in the media, it's like, we're hearing this name and we're hearing that this person's popular. And then for example, in the current, you know, he was reelected, but at the time when Scott Morrison um, was, was appointed, it was like this guy, like, wasn't everyone saying it was the far right Dutton guy that was going to get this job. And then like overnight the party says, no, we want Scott Morrison. And it just feels like a really strange thing that um, there's no cell. doesn't seem to be a celebration in Australian politics for when a leader is appointed. It's like, it's like, this is the person who survived a blood sport to your point. <laughs> they survived the blood. Yeah. Get it. 
And look, and I, I think that when it comes to the uh, American election this year, there's going to be very little sense of celebration. Yes. Um, no matter what happens, or there will be a deep counter uh, reaction. And we have this extraordinary situation where the Democratic Party looked at, flirted with the notion of a sort of a, a new generation, a next generation sh uh, shift, and rejected it very early, in fact, in the piece. Yes. And so in the end, it wound up being this contest between uh, Biden and Bernie Sanders, both men in, in their 70s, um, both past their prime. I think, I think there's no question that Biden is, is at least a decade, maybe 20 years past the time at which he was most effective. Bernie Sanders, his prime had, had been essentially <laughs> as a great irritant, but, it, but, it, but never, never in high office or close to it. So that was on that side of it. And on the other hand, you're looking at a Donald Trump. Um, another man in his 70s. And so we've got this situation. It's not a point that I'm making for the first time, uh, but we're the best that uh, the greatest democracy of all time, in theory, can deliver up is a contest between two, two men in their 70s, uh, one of whom has spent a lifetime actually studying and, and engaging in the businesses of government and has some of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the thumbprints down through history that now can be used against him on certain votes that he's made. Uh, and the other one who's really had none of those, but both in their 70s, both um, with serious question marks about their capacity to take uh, this vastly important nation to the world, uh, to take it forward over the next four years, in the case of Biden, let alone eight years. And so you have a sense to take a view of it that, you know, and if Trump wins again, of course, I was there in 2016 when he won there. And then I saw those protests that rolled around the country. And that was when there was no serious questions about his legitimacy. It wasn't 2000, uh, the, the Gore-Bush one, which came down to hanging chads and all that kind of stuff. He had won according to the rules. He might have lost the overall vote, but the Electoral College was emphatic that he was the winner. And yet there were still hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets. Now, if he wins there will be who knows how many more millions out on the streets. No. If he loses, there will be that potential for those heartland people. I know this has been discussed before, but David Kilcullen, a fine student, a uh, soldier academic, a fine student of, of, of um, essentially where insurgencies come from and how they get built up, has written uh, about the, the very real danger that there will be um, armed clashes within the United States in the course of the next uh, 12 to 18 months, because obviously we see a lot of right-wing groups that are heavily armed and they're highly visible, but there are now left-wing groups uh, and including black militias that are heavily armed and, and are showing, you know, flexing their muscles, rattling their sabers. And uh, all of it is essentially in a waiting room ahead of this next election. But, uh, but when the election comes in, we are again at another flex point in history where no one could reasonably say that the United States is in the best possible hands in the long term, uh, whoever wins it. And there are people with guns who are deeply opposed to whatever the outcome is. Yes. And it's the, the, the scarier thing is like you said, when Obama goes in and he's, you know, forties, you feel like that's more in the range that, you know, progressive leadership, but in the seventies and these guys are both of not great health um, and, 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 and intellectual capacity. It is also scary. And there's also been some, I don't know if it's fear mongering, but the writing is like that 
whether Trump accepts the legitimacy of the election. So the, the, there's the, some writing about, you know, if, if he is ousted and it is close, um, you know, it, it might be like he refuses to remove from office because he doesn't believe the election result, um, which is another, another wrinkle in this thing. But, uh, you know, that's... Well, this is a man who, who refused to believe the crowd numbers at his inauguration. Um, <laughs> you, you know, he, he has an incapacity to align his own thinking with reality. That's as polite as I can put it. Uh, if you look at the way in which he's responding to the pandemic, the, the, just the constant uh, falsehoods that come from his mouth out of that. He is wholly unfit for these desperately important high offices and the responsibilities that go with it. Not to say that he doesn't retain a, a strong and, uh, and very highly bonded on uh, supporter base. Yes. So the question then comes, so the two thing, threshold questions, one is, will he lose? I wouldn't say that's yet a given by any means. No. Um, I think it's probably more likely that, he, that he'll lose than he won't. But then it only takes uh, Joe Biden to give a mangled up speech in a high, you know, highly visible place or to stumble down a flight of stairs. And things are so fractious at the moment that, um, that you know, a perception comes that he is ill-suited for the job. Um, you could see what happened last time was that a lot of people in key uh, constituencies, battleground states and so on, uh, just simply didn't vote. They had no enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. So if you get no enthusiasm for Joe Biden or a concern about his health or something else going on or his cognitive capacities, then, then the hard locked on, rusted in um, Trump voters could still pull it out of the fire for him. Um, You'd think it unlikely, but it's certainly not impossible. And then the question then would come down to um, the character of Trump and the degree to which he might rise above himself in a way that he hasn't previously and said, look, this has been a contest and I've fought it hard, perhaps with an element of relief, say, and now I'll, it's proper, <laughs> I can leave a legacy of yeah. a proper handover. And that would go a long way to say historically, um, uh, smoothing his legacy, or he could dig in, it would be a fight he would almost inevitably have to lose unless it was to come down to just a, a few seats, a sort of a Florida type of 2000 outcome, in which case that, where he has some genuine legitimacy in his argument to be there and challenges to the Supreme Court and, and rallying his people to get out there, that would be the worst of all results. Yes. Um, you know, the United States is built around um, these notions of uh, the checks and balances, the constitutional um, capacity for each to essentially interfere in the activities of others. Uh, so whether it's the courts, because they can be appointed, those can be increasingly political appointments, um, obviously the, the role of the presidency and the role of Congress. And we saw that obviously with uh, Nixon, to return to that, that it was the processes of Congress and the independent processes of special prosecutors being appointed that ultimately did for Nixon. So you would not think that Trump cannot dig in, even though he's a commander in chief, he cannot dig in if the vote is clearly against him. Yes. But uh, the capacity for turbulence and violence is, um, you wouldn't say enormously high, but it would be quite naive to imagine it doesn't exist. Yeah. I think, I think in the recent civil rights process, um, especially with Black Lives Matter at the, at the death of George Floyd, I think 
we were we were as shocked as anyone at watching Australian journalistic foreign co- foreign correspondents and watching armed forces just like dish out violence in the streets to impose control or instigate violent clashes between peaceful protesters and then police. Like, I think it's, it's a really, it's a strange time. It's th- that disruption is really concerning because in the United States, you know, in Australia, we compuls for, for folks who are listening internationally, we, we are compulsory, compulsory required to vote. You know, we, if you, if you, once a, you register to vote at 18 years of age in, in this country, you have to vote whether it's a uh, an absentee ballot that you can cast early or, or some, something like that, you have to vote, you have to go to the polls and, and, and cast your vote. And so I think in, in the States, watching long people line up during a pandemic or potential lingering pandemic in the United States to vote and then things getting out of control or in, in the streets or police saying that you can't stand there and do this in certain states having regulations and then maybe digital interventions, it's 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 still a turbulent time it's by by any stretch there's still a lot of x factors that that aren't known. sure and, and and i mean one of the factors in there we've seen a little bit of this during the black lives matter protests is that the second amendment rights to bear arms yes have written in there that you have a right to bear arms as part of a well-regulated militia and the supreme court has taken a very loose view of what a well-regulated militia is essentially it's interpreted interpreted as being yes look you have a right to bear arms now But the second part becomes really significant because if you regulate yourself as a militia, you have particular clear uh, constitutional rights. And we see this in a practical sense rolling up with some of those protests in Washington, for example, people turn up in military camo gear with military weapons. And you need to look at them very closely to realize that they're that there's not complete uniformity in either their weapons or their uniforms, that they've got other aspects about them which will betray that they're not actually a sworn force, that they're not a military force. And yet they turn up on the side of the authorities or whatever to keep the protesters under control. This is this kind of capacity which um, seems to me to be unique in the United States, whereby people can, a bunch of like-minded people, generally men, We've seen some vision, by the way, of, of these squadrons of, uh, of exclusively black uh, people in black uh, op- operational gear, carrying their own M4s and M16s and other weapons of choice, marching around the place, making the point, hey, you can do it, we can do it too. Yes. Um, but, but that notion of the well-regulated militia takes the notion of... Um, the state being the sole uh, enterprise that has the uh, rights to guns and the use of force. And it essentially built into the constitution, plainly because of the revolutionary nature of the origins of the United States, this this legally uh, (laughs) protected capacity for any bunch of like-minded people who fancy themselves to be even vaguely regulated or well-regulated, um, to roll up and do as they please. And that is um, disturbing I'm because the, the, violence of poli- the violence of police in some of these things and, and some of those other National Guards rolling out, etc., would go well beyond what in Australia we would think would be a fair thing. I, uh, I, I, and then you get the other mobs. You and I walking along a street, if there was an Australia, if you walked past an Australian courthouse and someone was standing out there just in camo gear, like odd camo gear, 
you know, not not a, not an not an not an armed forces representative, but just some some person who was taking taking the militia, and they were seeing there with a machine gun. I, I mean, people would flee the streets. Like Australians would run and try and look for a police officer, or trying to look, you know, reflexively just the way that our government is structured. Like that would be unconscionable. Police would stop that person, and so some of the even the vision, the disturbing vision of seeing like these these militia people out there in these huge military, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger commando style weapons, like standing there. It's just, it's, it's scary. Like it's scary in a way that I think that in, in the United States and for folks who are listening, you might be inured to it. You might be uh, numbed to it. But for someone like me, when I see these footage here and I know that I can speak for definitely people in Oz, it's just like, it seems so incredible. It seems so incredible. It's just yeah, I mean, one of the things about it is that I've got four children and I say to friends in America that it does not cross my mind that any of my children might remotely, that there's any possibility that my children might be shot at school. Yes. And they, and it's in the back of all the, it, it, it's at the back of your mind. Yeah. You, you know, no matter where you live, there's, there's some prospect of, of that going on. So, so you're quite right about that. The other thing, the point that David Kilcullen makes is that there are, just short of 3 million people in the United States right now who are actually military trained uh, through the post-2001 9-11 wars. So it's not even as if these guys are complete bumpkins who have no idea even which end of the gun to shoot. There are a lot of people in the United States. This is before you even go to those who through gun clubs, through hunting, through other uh, police force and so on experience, uh, have a lot of uh, gun knowledge and and capacities. including tactical capacities, not just how, how you use a weapon, but then how do you close down a city block? How do you, uh, you know, how do you get access? How do you get egress from an event? How do you distract? How do you draw away, um, you know, law enforcement or other kinds of things so that you can do what you want to do somewhere else? There are literally millions of people in the United States who've been trained in exactly those kinds of skills. And if they wanted to use them, uh, you know, it, it is on for young and old. In, in Australia, some people, a fringe within Australia, say this is a bad thing, says it leaves us vulnerable to attack. We have nothing like that level of training, that technical, technical knowledge, and of course, we don't have access to the guns. So you can walk through the CBD of Sydney, as, as, I, as I do, yeah. and, um, uh, and not see a gun I can walk through, I walk to work and I walk back again through the middle of the, of the Sydney CBD and will not see a weapon for weeks at a time. And if I do, it'll be, um, it, it'll be the police and it'll be a sidearm and or it'll be purely a, by chance. A sidearm guard of the, like someone collecting money from an ATM. A I payroll reckon, type of stuff. A, yeah. a payroll security guard. I reckon that's maybe the only two times I, I, th- I can even think of seeing a gun in the last year. A payroll, a security guard protecting an ATM drop off, or a bank delivery of funds, or something like that, and and a police officer. It's it's um, it's really fascinating. And that doesn't make that doesn't make the Australian experience that unusual. The same you'd see in Northern Europe, by and large. Um, You know, in the in the UK, tends to be. I lived in London uh, when the IRA was still very active, and you certainly saw more of it then. And in the post 9-11 age, you certainly see more through airports and so on. And you will see yep. a bit of that at, say, Sydney Airport. But, um, not in but footy, that is something. Not, not in footy shorts, as I saw in Johannesburg. Uh, just someone bombing around with just a, just a handgun in their footy shorts. So uh, that's a slight, slightly scarier, uh, scarier prospect. Well, look, 
I mean, I could talk to you forever, Hugh. This has been an absolute treat to talk to you, to dive into American politics and to dive through this movie um, with you. Uh, I just want to say it's an honor to talk to you and, uh, and, I, and I hope that people have had as much fun listening to this as I've had as much fun talking to you. And, and I just want to say thank you. And thank you for what you do, keeping the lights oh. on, that person late up at night, uh, actually on our TV screens rather than just on a typewriter, on our TV screens <laughs> reporting what's going on. So I just want to say I'm an admirer of your work and thank you so much for being a part of the show. Well, it's a great privilege, Blake, and, and I love your project and, uh, and good luck with the rest of your guests. That was the incredible Hugh Remington, one of Australia's great anchors, a privilege to talk to him on the show. Uh, if you want to follow Hugh, the best place you can find him is on Twitter, which is at H-U-G-H-R-I-M-I-N-T-O-N. Um, He's the National Affairs Editor on Channel 10 News. You're going to see him there, Professor in the Hack Podcast, as we mentioned. And he does put up a bunch of clips and links to everything that's happening in the news world. And he's a pretty active Twitterer, so if you want to interact with him, reach out to him there. An honour to have him on the show. Honour to have my wife starstruck about a guest. That's fun. Isn't that a blast? Guys, thank you so much for listening. At ATPM Pod is where you can find us on Twitter. At One Blake Minute Pod is where you can find me. And OneHeatMinute.com is where you can find the entire cache of all of the One Heat Minute productions, including One Heat Minute, Last 12 Minutes, The Mohicans, Josie and the Podcats, Increment Vice, all the President's Minutes, as you know, and a couple of episodes of Miami Nice, which is on hiatus at the moment, but we will be back. If you can, please share, subscribe, review. We love your support. Thanks so much for listening.